Welcome to the Humble Hoof Podcast. My name is Alicia Harlov. This is a podcast for both horse owners and hoof care professionals, offering discussions into various philosophies on the health of the hoof and soundness of your horse. Please check us out on Facebook or at thehumblehoof.com. Thrush is something we all deal with at some point or another. Anytime I see a less than ideal frog, I question if there's something going on pathogen-wise. It doesn't even always have to have the typical thrush smell to be an infection of some kind. I heard that Sam Austin of Red Horse Products gave a talk about thrush at the International Hoof Care Summit in Ohio this year, so I reached out to him to see if he would talk to me about some questions I had about what causes thrush and how to treat it. So I'm Sam Austin. I'm director and product research manager at Red Horse Products. So we develop and manufacture primarily antimicrobial products for horses' feet. And how did you become interested in, you know, thrush and hoof health? Mainly because I used to be an event rider and was looking after a number of clients' horses. I used to primarily event barefoot. And these horses had issues that kept on turning up. Initially, white line disease was one of our, our main problems and deep central sulcus. Working with an equine podiatrist, we were really, really struggling to get on top of these problems. The horses were living in a quite a, quite a damp environment, as a lot of the UK is, because we couldn't find anything on the market that was effectively treating the problems. I worked with my father, who's a vet and a beekeeper. I've always had a keen interest in science and have science qualifications. So we developed products he had around, things he suggested, products from his bees, and they worked extremely well, which we were surprised about. Well, we hoped they would, and then other people asked to buy them, and the interest grew. <laughs> That's really cool. And can you talk a little bit about the microbes that, that we are seeing in the foot and, and how thrush starts? So uh, thrush is generally thought to be a bacterial disease. That said, there are so many microbes that live in the soil. You have other fungi, bacteria, even viruses and, and yeasts that can all be negative to the foot. So all these tend to get grouped in and called thrush, really according to the symptoms that they produce, which is the, the foul smell, the, the blackening and the degradation of, of hoof tissue. And generally, it's, it's all about the, the environment that the horse is in. If they're in warm, wet, high organic material environments, there will tend to be a lot more microbes living in the soil. So if the hoof isn't robust against them, if the hoof tissue doesn't have good density primarily, then it will very easily become a food source for these microbes and they will grow upon it and cause problems. And is thrush the same type of infection as white line disease or are they distinctly different? White line disease is generally considered to be fungal. So all these microbes are something we call keratolytic which just means that they break down keratin, which is why they're so problematic. But, you know, we, we say thrush is bacterial, we say white line is fungal, but, but I think it would be a bit naive to assume that that is always the case because the microbes that live 
in our soil in the UK are very unlikely to be identical to the microbes that, that you get in different parts of the USA. But it's not too big a deal. We don't need to be too strict about identifying exactly what the causative organism is because they can often be treated in the same way. You don't often need to use very, very specific antifungals or very specific antibacterials as you would in, say, human internal medicine, where you need to be very specific about what you're dealing with. So that's, uh, that's the difference, really. Yeah, that makes sense. A good friend of mine is Casey Sexton, a hoof care provider in Georgia. Her husband is Joe Sexton, a microbiologist who currently does research at a federal agency. He has developed antimicrobial technologies and studied the evolution of social behavior in bacteria for his PhD. I thought I'd bring him into the conversation since he has studied disinfectants and knows a lot about the topic. I'm a microbiologist. I've experienced doing, you know, applied microbiology with bacteria and fungi. I got my PhD studying the evolution of social behaviors at Oregon State University. And now I do work with disinfection, fungal diseases and whatnot. Well, one, th one thing I guess I could zoom out and just say, when you're talking about these microbial infections, it, it's so helpful. And I feel like a lot of people are really coming to appreciate this, but these are really complicated microbial communities. And it can be really tricky to say what organism is just there and which one is actually causing a problem, right? Like how do you tell if a microbe is just hanging around or if it's actually causing the infection? Is it actually making it worse and whatnot? And it can be really hard to tease apart because when you look at the microbial community, it's something like a horse's foot, which is walking around on the dirt all the time. You know, there's so many different microbes there. So it can just be technically challenging to get in there and do a good job demonstrating what's causing the problem. So if we aren't even sure what is causing the thrush problems, how do we go about treating it and how do thrush treatments even work? You talked a little, you started talking a little bit about this, but um, how, how do thrush treatments work? They have a variety of different actions you're looking at either producing an unpleasant environment for the, the causal organisms. So, for example, just drying out the, the foot. That can be very effective in its, in its own right, but it can be very short term if you're going to turn them back out into a damp field. But a lot of them, basically, the active ingredient is toxic to the fungal bacteria. So zinc ions, for example, or copper ions are the main kind of toxic active ingredients that are commonly used. But then you've got peroxides and things. But yeah, basically, they're working at destroying the bacteria quite directly. And how do you or what products do you worry about? with healthy tissue? I mean, obviously, we don't want to destroy the healthy tissue along with the bacteria or fungus that we're trying to eradicate. Yeah. And I think that is, that's got to be really crucial to people's approach with thrush treatment and management and, and general hoof health in that there are quite a lot of things that we can put on the hoof that will do a fantastic job of destroying fungi and bacteria 
but that's because they are toxic, aggressive, caustic to all living tissue, not just fungi and bacteria. So we can be looking at things like peroxide, it's very aggressive to living tissue. And you can have other things that iodine, for example, it's not too aggressive to living tissue, but it's very drying to the soul. So studies have shown that continued use of iodine can cause microscopic cracks or even quite large cracks in the soul, which then become a perfect environment for bacteria to infiltrate. And you have other products. Copper sulfate is such a common thing to use, but it is caustic. It burns tissue. And we have to be mindful that we want to destroy the bacteria, but we want to deprive them of their food source at the same time. Otherwise, they will just reinfect. And their food source is degraded solar and frog tissue. So if we're applying chemicals that degrade the tissue, break it down, make cracks in it, make it more spongy and less dense, then we are going to encourage reinfection. And then we'll have to be treating the whole time and eventually we're going to get a, a big reinfection. Yeah, that actually makes a lot of sense. I never really thought of it that way. So thanks for explaining that. And so what are what are some common antimicrobials that will not hurt healthy tissue that we want to keep? So uh, a really good guide to this is would you put it on your own skin on your on the inside of your forearm for example and expect it not to leave you with damage or or burning. Zinc sulfate is a fantastic alternative to copper sulfate. If we go and look at studies where it's been used in most situations when being used as an antibacterial, it is as effective, if not more effective, than copper sulfate, but it doesn't burn tissue. It's an absolute no-brainer to use zinc sulfate instead of copper sulfate. Zinc oxide is another superb zinc salt that works very well. Again, it's using a, a zinc ion, which is toxic to bacteria, but not body cells. So that's superb. Silver, again, isn't toxic to, to living tissue, but bacteria respond very badly to it. So that works fantastically. Honey is great. Some essential oils, we need to be selective about essential oils because some of them are too aggressive and too drying. So we're keen on the use of oregano, bergamot, eucalyptus oil, not tea tree oil. Tea tree oil is something that, that we've found tends to be too aggressive and drying, and horses are very prone to being allergic to it. You know, we're learning the whole time. We used to use tea tree oil in our products until we saw some research that said, well, it's, tea tree oil is too aggressive towards good bacteria. Yeah. Whereas eucalyptus oil, oregano, rosemary, and, and even bergamot are very effective antibacterials. But the only effect apart from that they seem to have is they tend to toughen up the sole tissue. So they, they make it less porous, uh, which is a great side effect. So with people, I know um, like oregano essential oil can be like burning to the skin. Is that is not, not true for like frog tissue? Or is we it just only diluted? Use it in very we only really suggest using it in, in very low concentrations. So, I mean, really any essential oils, use of it at more than 2 or 3% probably isn't worth it because essential oils are very strong solvents. 
in their own rights. So yeah, they can be damaging and, and they can be allergenic. So oregano is very high in something called thymol, which is a useful antibacterial, but you're tending not to use it at very high concentrations. I don't know if you know of any products that might be, or, or I guess ingredients that might be popular that you think are caustic to healthy tissue. I mean, first I'll say I'm not a vet. I don't focus on horses, but I, as a microbiologist and someone who's done work on disinfectants and antimicrobials, first, just because of the issue of increasing antimicrobial resistance to things like antibiotics and antifungals, I would anticipate less success with things like athlete's foot cream. So what I think makes more sense and, and I think this is relevant to you because on the forums and stuff, people are always arguing or discussing, what about apple cider vinegar? What about white distilled vinegar? What about this? What about that, right? Yeah. I think things like apple cider vinegar, white distilled vinegar, really shouldn't make that big of a difference. I know people argue a lot one way or the other, and there may be some slight differences, but you know, mechanistically, they should be in the same ballpark. Things like Pete's goo, things like Artemud, those things make a lot of sense. But then there's that those cases where maybe those things, Pete's goo, artemide, apple cider vinegar soaks, maybe those aren't working. And then I see conversations move to more serious disinfectants. I've even heard of people doing like bleach soaks or things with oxine. And you know, the, it's harder to really say, but my advice to Casey when she's going out is just like, you know, some of those disinfectants especially oxygen, if you're mixing things together in the field, you know, then you're kind of working with hazardous chemicals at that point. And so one piece of advice is just to be careful. You know, if you're out there at someone's barn and you get a bad chemical burn, that's not going to be fun. It also brings up things like, well, that could probably be damaging horse tissue as well. So my bigger picture perspective is like, if you're past the point where artemud, peats goo, apple cider vinegar soaks, if some of those core things aren't working, and you're really looking at more intense disinfectants, maybe that's time to communicate with a vet and loop in a vet if you have an infection that's getting way worse and you know you just can't get on top of it and you've addressed everything else. That's kind of seems like the right choice at that point. Yeah, that's a really good point. And, you know, we had just talked, I think we had, you had mentioned about, you know, the sort of issue with trying to dry the foot and then you're just putting the horse back out in a wet environment you're kind of it's you know not really it's counterproductive but so what are the decisions that we need to think about when deciding between a wet topical treatment or a dry topical treatment for thrush so one of the catches you've got with a dry topical treatment is that most of the active ingredients that are put in these compounds actually rely on a degree of moisture to work. So powders, for example, can be very effective at mechanical treatment. So they can dehydrate the bacteria, for example, and they can remove some of the moisture from the tissue. But say you put a zinc sulfate powder inside a diatomaceous earth base, for example, you do a very good job of drying the foot out. But the zinc sulfate probably isn't going to have much of effect because it relies on being dissolved in water to release the ions to work. So the dry powders and things can be part of a management protocol, but I don't think 
as a treatment method, they tend to be exceptionally good. One situation where that might not apply is when you're, for example, using a powder in a deep central sulcus crack, which tends to be very moist, and the powder helps by applying pressure to the inside of that crack to stimulate regrowth. Admittedly, we would have a different approach to that in that we would use a, a medicated wadding, so medicated with zinc oxide and honey usually. But dry substances are good at depriving the bacteria of moisture, which they need, but you need to think very carefully about your environment. So maybe we would use a, a dry substance inside a, a hoof boot that was on the whole time that is always creating sweat. But moist carriers are much better at delivering active ingredient and helping it work. On that vein, if you use a greasy cream, so a, a cream or a grease to deliver your active ingredient, you also need to bear in mind that moisture is still not going to be able to get to the active ingredient in that treatment. So again, if you had, for example, a copper sulfate or a zinc sulfate crystal in a petroleum base, you're going to get a very low level of dissolving of the individual crystals. So the compound isn't really going to get a chance to work very well. So a, a, a water-based paste, for example, can be a much better way of delivering active ingredients. And when you're formulating different, I mean, you know, because you make these topical products, when you're formulating different products, how are you deciding which ingredients you're putting together in a certain product versus another one? So, yeah, that's a difficult one. Oh, it's, a, well, it's an easy Sorry. one in my mind. It's difficult to explain. Uh, we start off, often what we're doing is looking at two things. We want the product to be a particular consistency. So the deeper the cavity, for example, the thicker we want the consistency to be because thicker consistency products apply more pressure on the inside of cavities and pressure on the inside of cavities stimulates growth and a thicker product will stay there more effectively. Whereas something that is just being used on the surface of the frog or the sole can happily be a liquid. So we start off with consistency and then we think about what chemical action, chemical properties we want the product to have. So, you know, usually we want it to be destroying bacteria as best we can without destroying live tissue. And our principle is in order to get the mechanical properties, so the, the thickness, really, we want to be using a carrier that is going to be as much, is going to have as much chemical effect as possible. So it's going to be a, a beneficial carrier. For example, the use of clay and honey as a carrier is good because clay and honey will produce a good sticky consistency that means things will stay in place in cracks. Honey is antibacterial. It is beneficial to living tissue. And clay has a drawing action. So not only is it creating that thickness, it is creating a, an action that pulls bacteria and necrotic tissue out of the deeper areas of the foot. And then we put the active ingredients, the chemical ingredients in as higher concentration as we can achieve without causing issues with tissue degradation, allergic reactions, or the mechanical aspect of the product. So where we have a product that we want to be sprayable, 
we're quite limited how much active chemical ingredient we can put in and it still remains sprayable. But that's basically where we work from. Yeah, and you had mentioned at one point that you are when you have something that's deep and you want to stimulate more healthy tissue growth, you make it a thicker a thicker yeah. product. And so this is something that I come across a lot with clients where you know, we might get to the point where the central sulcus is open and, you know, it looks like the tissue is all solid in terms of what you're seeing at the bottom of that central sulcus, but it's still fairly a deep central sulcus. And do you just recommend, you know, even though you might not see or think that there's thrush there, do you still recommend treating it or packing it with like a clay or will that eventually stimulate more growth just from the pressure of that product? Deep central sulcus cracks get to a point where you can't keep anything in, so you can't stimulate any pressure, apart from possibly by external means or through working a horse barefoot on in the cracked environment. Deep central sulcus cracks, you tend to have a dual problem. You have a mechanical problem and you have a bacterial problem. The bacterial problem is so often very, very easy to to treat. It seems like it's not, but a zinc sulfate solution can very easily get rid of the, the bacterial issues. But correcting the mechanical problem in order to get the crack to grow out is very, very difficult because there is no pressure on the inside of that crack. There is no stimulus for it to grow. So yes, what we recommend is packing we use a cotton medicated cotton packing cotton in there so you stimulate cells to put down new growth but you also stimulate the deepest part of that crack to push down towards the outside so rather than growing together by the crack knitting together like a zip from the deepest part you try and get it to heal by turning itself inside out if you understand what i mean yeah. And then once it's turned inside out, it's very hard for that to regrow. So we think in central sulcus cracks, what's often happened is the tissue's inverted itself and needs, needs something to push against in order to come back out. But when once it's got to the point where you can't keep any packing in, it's worth putting something that will stimulate some regrowth. So the medicated clays rubbed well into the you know when you get the size of the size of hole that you can just put your little finger flat into rather than directly down just rubbing some some antimicrobials into there will often be enough to to help the frog regrow oh that's great yeah i can definitely tell um i have i have a lot of clients that will kind of graduate from the hoof stuff and move on to artemud so I'll, exactly I'll, you know, yeah. I'll just keep and, the, and, them then to... they, and then they move on to the field place just just rubbed into that dimple something interesting that we have found is that the honey based products somehow we don't quite understand how the frog seems to get plumper when you when you apply the honey based products to them now obviously the frog can't physically grow from the outside <laughs> But whether it's whether it's toughening it up to reduce wear or whether it's hydrating the tissue, which is making it flesh out, it's hard to say. But use of even just even just raw honey on the frog seems to promote growth. That's really interesting. I'll have to do some mm. experimentation with that. <laughs> Well, it was the uh, people, uh, we had podiatrists coming back saying that they had very withered horses with very withered frogs. 
and they were using our our honey heel product on it and they said yeah it's making the frogs fatter and to which we replied <laughs> we're like well, i don't know how <laughs> but 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 it can't be a bad thing <laughs> yeah oh that's really great oh i'll definitely have to try that yeah, do some left-right trials. Yeah. Um, oh, my horse would be great works. for that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I just really have one more question. So once you kind of eradicate that thrush and the, the frog is looking fairly healthy and the horse is doing well, what can you do to prevent thrush from taking hold again in that foot? So really you're looking to keep that the, the frog and the sole tissue as dense as possible. We favour the use of some hoof hardeners. You've got to be careful what you use for hoof hardeners because formalin, iodine, they both will harden the hoof, but they will cause microscopic cracks that actually eventually get infiltrated with moisture and then, and then bacteria. Whereas things like turpentine, which uh, is also a pretty popular hoof hardener, it's a very strong solvent, so we have concerns that it will dissolve the lipid layer in the hoof tissue and, again, cause it not to be able to regulate its own moisture levels. Uh, so when it comes to hoof hardening, we favour, uh, you can use weak fruit acids, so cider vinegar, lemon juice have a surprisingly good hardening effect without detrimental effects. Zinc sulfate is a fantastic hoof hardener. And again, using that on a regular basis, you're not going to get thrush issues because it's a superb antibacterial. MSM is another, that's uh, organic sulfur, can be very useful. And again, you've got some essential oils that can have a hoof toughening effect. Lemon oil, alimi oil, and there, there are probably many others that used dilute and we prefer can dilute in oil but we usually prefer having it dissolved in a water base um so using a surfactant but then you're looking at the environment obviously keeping it dry as possible avoiding the horse standing in organic matter for long periods of time bacteria and, and fungi are always going to be there the, the horse is always going to be exposed to it so you've got to just try and make it so that the environment on your horse's foot isn't favorable to it needless to say you've got to look at nutrition it's not our area of expertise but the more i look at nutrition the more i worry that people are just putting more of everything into their horse rather than looking at what their horse is low in and high in so when people do come to us and say our horse has got a uh, the hoof wall is looking very very cracked up for instance and there's no obvious reason and, and we say you need to look at the nutrition we say please go back and look at the mineral levels in your horse's forage in your horse's hard feed and in your horse's pasture before you supplement it because if for example your horse's diet is too high in iron you might just be putting more iron in with the supplementation so nutritional balance is is crucial obviously something we try and drill home about is people avoiding antibiotic resistance so the regular use of tetracycline teramycin for example on the sole of the foot in order to supposedly prevent thrush can be very 
I don't want to say irresponsible, but <laughs> short-sighted, because over time you will just create a new strain of thrush that's resistant to those antibiotics, whereas simpler antibacterials like your zinc salts don't develop resistance, or if they do, it's over a very, very, very long period of time. One of the other very important preventative methods is if your horse is shod, and especially if your horse is in pads or shoes that cover the entirety of the foot, then using a, a medicated clay underneath that can improve the quality of your horse's foot whilst there is a pad on rather than just create this cycle of the foot gets more thrushy so it gets softer so it needs a pad on and then you can never take the pad off because your horse's foot is too weak so yeah that can be a superb preventative measure that is more commonly being used now especially under under things like dental impression material which are really useful in shoeing situations but they make the foot sweat sweat might not be a biologically correct term <laughs> um, <laughs> but it certainly makes the foot exude moisture more than a lot of other pads. So using antimicrobials underneath those that are going to last is very important. Oh yeah. I've seen a huge difference when I add, when I add something underneath dental impression material or any kind of packing, you know, under a glue on, I feel like it makes a huge difference in what you take off five weeks later, six weeks later. You know. Joe found a really interesting paper on white line disease, studying over 50 off-the-track thoroughbreds with the disease. Joe also has an interest in ecology and has also wondered how regenerative efforts for the forages that our horses eat might improve hoof health. I really like this paper, this 1998 paper from the Equine Veterinary Journal called Onychomycosis and White Line Disease in Horses. Pathology, Mycology, and Clinical Features. And the author is Kuwano and their collaborators. And essentially, this group from Japan, they're with the Equine Research Institute, and they collaborated with some scientists at the Division of Microbiology at the Japanese National Institute of Health Sciences. And they, they took 51 thoroughbreds with white line disease and went, in, went through the process of really trying to figure out what microbes were associated with that infection. And they do really good quality work trying to attribute the causative organism to these 51 thoroughbreds that have white line disease. And they had a pretty strict criteria for saying, we're confident that this organism is causing the problem. And essentially they were able to find 10 where they were really confident in being able to attribute white line disease to fungal disease. And in most of these cases, they were able to attribute it to this one specific fungal pathogen called Scytosporium apiospermum. And that's a really interesting, it was interesting to read that. And they did a really good job of showing through histology, you know, they took slices of the hoof, did staining, isolated the fungus. But Scytosporium is a really interesting organism. It's an opportunistic pathogen. So it's kind of, its lifestyle in the natural environment isn't really understood that well, but we know both in, certainly in humans, it causes opportunistic infections, particularly in the lungs of people with cystic fibrosis and other immunocompromised states. One of the things, characteristics of Scytosporium is that it produces a lot of extracellular enzymes that make it really good at breaking down a horse's hoof wall and 
the material on the white line. Another really interesting characteristic of Sketosporium is that it's notorious for being intrinsically resistant to antifungals. So things like azoles, which are, you know, ingredients that are common in things like athlete's foot cream. You would not really expect that to work. So a couple takeaways is that they did a great job of attributing the problem in their sample of horses to Sketosporium, which is an opportunistic pathogen. And I think the, the thing we can learn from that is fighting this specific organism is challenging, but it also indicates other underlying things. You can deal with things like thrush and white line as you need to, but they're really indicative of something else that's wrong with the horse, either nutritionally or, or otherwise, that you know, when you're treating the infection, you're really just kind of, you're treating the symptoms, but you really want to start or should be going down the road of saying, well, what's going on with the horse that's making its foot vulnerable to infections in the first place? Yeah. And that's probably going to be the more productive route than really trying to chase down what is the causative problem and finding some treatment that really pulls in organism-specific info. I think that's going to be really challenging given the microbial diversity that exists. And that that's another point I'd make is in this study, in Japan, in their cohort of horses, they found a lot of Sketosporium, but you could easily envision in another context, some other opportunistic fungal pathogen doing the same thing, and it might have different properties. So I think rather than chase the individual microbe, really look at the overlying condition of the horse. Yeah. I really appreciate you turning me on to that regenerative grazing group. I've tuned into that a lot, and I've reference that a lot as I've got the sheep project going. So Casey and I have put together a organization now to help support the sheep project, which is we're at a local nature preserve in Atlanta that has a huge invasive species problem. And we're moving the sheep around to beat back the invasives. And now we're working with other partners to bring in native plants. That's just kind of something I'm really passionate about is how can we synergistically find ways to improve the natural habitat. And so one thing that I'm really interested in going forward and I have a lot to learn, but I think it would be really exciting to say, how can horse health fit into that? I know that there's a lot of experimentation and growth happening with alternative paddocks, things like the paddock paradise, just alternatives to just the traditional pasture, right? Right. And things that you can incorporate into a horse's environment that might improve its hoof health and things of that nature. One thing I'd be really, I'm really interested in is, is there a way to link that with something that's good for restoring the natural environment? You know, could you have a piece of property where you blend those two things together, where it's almost like a horse restoration facility combined with some effort to restore the natural ecology of the place too, where maybe you have native plants that are healthy forage along the way and kind of incorporate that in a paddock design. You know, I really have no extensive experience with horses, but I've really got brought into this because I'm married to Casey and she's, you know, gone through her journey becoming a trimmer and a hoof care provider over the last couple of years, which has been incredible. It's been incredible to watch her go through that growth process and it's also cool because she she draws a lot of that from her childhood experiences, watching her mom do the same thing. And it's actually, it's a really beautiful thing to kind of be associated with or to see happen with Casey 
her mom and her brother all kind of working together in the same area, the different expertise that they have. It's really cool having the presence of kind of like this family trade here in North Georgia. So I just kind of learn, I'm learning as much as I can through those conversations with them, but that's such a great way for me to learn and learn about what their goals are and the problems that they're having. And it just gets me kind of reading about this stuff on the side. And that's how I found this, this article from Japan. But I know there's a lot of conversations. It's just like always the theme of the conversation is how can we help the horse more? I think more and more we're going to be looking at bacterial imbalances on the horse's frog and soul. It's happening in human medicine. You know, there's such a good understanding now of, of the gut microbiome in, in horses and people that there has to be a healthy balance of, of good bacteria in there. And we know that, that from now our skin, you know, we know our skin has a microbiome and we know that we can cause bacterial infections by just by destroying the healthy bacteria that are there on our skin, fighting against the bacteria, the bad bacteria the whole time. It would be really naive to think that that wasn't the case on the horse's foot. So whatever treatments we use, we need to start thinking of avoiding damage to good bacterial populations, which I think is where, you know, some products don't work and where we're scratching our heads and going, this product hasn't worked, it really should have. It's got a very strong antibacterial effect. Why is reinfection occurring? And that can either be that we're damaging the the soul and the frog tissue that's helping with the reinfection, or it can be that we've killed all the healthy bacteria on the foot that are all the time providing a, a bit of a, a resistance against the bad ones. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. This is, I mean, I feel like I learned a ton and I'm, <laughs> I'm obsessed with feet. So <laughs> this is really good. Well, um, <laughs> I'm glad. Um, uh, like I say, we're, we're keen to learn. And, and we, adapt, we adapt, we've adapted our products multiple times according to recent research. Yeah. Um, I've been super happy with the products. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, again, thank you so much. This was really, really helpful and I'm really excited to put it out. I think this is really good information that every horse owner needs to hear. So. Um, good. Well, thank you very much for giving me the opportunity. Oh yeah, of course. So yeah. I'll, I'll be in touch. Excellent. All right, thanks a lot, Alicia. Have a great rest Take of your care. day. All right, you too. Thanks. Bye. Bye. I always say that I'm slightly more hoof obsessed than the average person. And chances are, if you're listening to a hoof care podcast, you are too. So we should probably be friends. Feel free to find me on Facebook or email me at thehumblehoof at gmail.com.